From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, a COVID-19 survivor who spent 10 days on a ventilator. Ravi Terman of Aurora says her lungs are much better, but... I do have a little bit of trouble walking from the coma and the ventilator. They put you in a paralysis state. They literally paralyze you. Most coronavirus patients put on a vent don't survive. And at times, Terman thought she hadn't. I wondered at one point, am I dead? Is this what dead is like? I was hearing different voices saying different things. Some of it sounded like uh, they were about to prepare for my funeral. Also coming up, the pandemic's racial disparities. And later, a Colorado scientist heads for a different kind of isolation. It is very much a different world out there in the central Arctic right now. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Most COVID-19 patients who are put on a ventilator don't survive. And so Ravi Terman of Aurora is the exception, not the rule. Just over a month ago, the 51-year-old arrived at the University of Colorado hospitals. Doctors gave her a 50-50 chance. Well, she's home now where I reached her. Ravi, thank you for being with us. It's great to be here. I want to know how you're feeling right now. Right now, I am doing good. My lungs are clear. I do have a little bit of trouble walking from the coma and the ventilator. They put you in a paralysis state. They literally paralyze you. And so my legs are having a bit of a problem. Um, It doesn't hurt or anything. It's just that I have to get strength back into my body. And so I'm having to do some exercises and things. But other than that, I feel pretty much normal. So you're expected to get back that movement and that strength. That's not long. Yes, I just got to work it out. What are the workouts like? I'm just curious. What are they having you do? Just simple, general things like lifting your hands above your head because my, especially my right arm, is a little difficult to lift. Hmm. And um, I'm trying to describe it like you kick your leg out and then you move your foot back and forth and then put the foot down. You do that repeatedly. They give you some reps to do. I think you're describing the hokey pokey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, put your right arm in, put your right arm out. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, basically, but sitting down. <laughs> but sitting down. But, okay, so are you ambulatory? Can you walk? I can walk. Okay. Um, it's very slow, but I can walk. Every day feels a little better or what? Yeah, literally, it does. Every morning when I wake up, when I get out of the bed, it's like, oh, that was a little easier. <laughs> Got it. Uh, just to go back a little bit, at first, I understand you were reluctant to go to the hospital, even though your symptoms were getting pretty True. bad. When you arrived at the ER, mm-hmm. your lips were turning blue. It was that hard for you to get oxygen. Well, see, what had happened was, from my perspective, it did not feel any different from a cold, from a bad cold. The shortness of breath, I kind of just brushed off as me being new to Colorado because I've only been here since December. Mm. Um, I've lived my whole life, pretty much my whole life in Indianapolis, Indiana. Denver is a mile above. So that's a huge difference. And I had been having trouble previous to me being sick having shortness of breath and things like that. So that was not new to me. Um, My daughter was the first one to really tell me, mama, you really need to go to the hospital because she works at the airport and they've been taught all of the symptoms 
to recognize out of passengers. Interesting. When someone looks like they might have the virus. Yeah. What was it that tipped her off? She said that um, the shortness of breath and the color of my eyes, the white in my eyes, didn't look right. And so she was like, Mom, this, she said, something's really wrong. But I still didn't feel bad. Wow. It wasn't until I got to the hospital and we had been there a little while, they were sending her home. That's when, as she was going leaving, I started feeling really bad. The reason I'm wowing here as you tell this story is because your condition was so bad, doctors rushed you to the ICU and your lungs collapsed and you had to go on a ventilator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How long were you on the ventilator? I was on the ventilator 10 days. I was literally in a coma for 10 days. They took me off the ventilator as they were bringing me up out of the coma. What do you remember? You said you barely remember your daughter leaving the hospital. I had a lot of little images in my mind. I could see like a dimness in the room and I could hear voices, but I couldn't distinguish what they were. And I remember fading in and out. As I got, I felt like I was getting a little stronger and it seemed like I was staying up a little longer. And I would tell myself, remember what happened before. Breathe. Try to really breathe. Hmm. Because what you may or may not know is that I also am a cancer survivor. Ten years ago, I had uterine cancer. And I was in a coma then for three days after surgery. And I had 43 lymph nodes taken out as well as I had a full hysterectomy. So I kind of knew what they were going to expect me to do when I woke up. Um, I just didn't know I was under that long. Um, So just to be clear, the messages you're telling yourself and the little glimpses, you say, of of a kind of dim light, that's all while you're under uh, the medical coma. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yes. Did you have thoughts that your life was in jeopardy? Did you have thoughts like, am I going to make it? Yes. I wondered at one point, am I dead? Is this what dead is like? Um, I was hearing different voices saying different things. And some of them I could distinguish. Some of them I couldn't. Some of it sounded like uh, they were about to prepare for my funeral. And I was like, whoa, I'm dead. You know, I was like, I was really like trying to figure out whether I was alive or dead. At one point, I started thinking, no, I can't be dead because as I understand death, that's a lack of consciousness. If I'm thinking these thoughts, I can't be dead. So I'm like, okay, so if that's the case, then I must be still alive. I had to really think about that. You talk about hearing voices. Were those the healthcare workers around you then? Some of it, I think so. But there were some definite voices I definitely heard. And I really, but what I believe is that um, there's two things that I was thinking. One day, I felt like I was actually leaving, meaning I was about to die. And what I felt snapped me back was my mother. It was almost as if she was praying and she was saying, I can't lose another child. My mother had lost a child when I was a, before I was born. And she said, I can't go through losing another child. And I heard my daughter, I have only one child. And she said, please don't take my mom. I can't bear the thought of my mom not being here. I heard that literally, I mean, I still remember it. 
And that literally snapped me back. That's, that's the best way I can describe it. The voices of your mom and your daughter, were those literal? In other words, were they like uh, video chatted in or were those voices in your own head? They were voices in my own head. Okay. They were not video chatted. Okay. Um, I asked them later. I told them what I heard and they told me that's what they were thinking huh. and saying out loud. I am reading a lot these days about the long-term effects of COVID-19, which to a large extent remain a mystery. There's kidney disease, impaired lung function that can have cascading effects on the rest of the body. What have doctors told you about your health going forward? They haven't really said much. I personally have noticed I do have a little bit of a problem with my lungs when I laugh too long or if I um, get overly excited about something, like if I get really, really happy, I have a little difficulty with my lungs at that point. I have been trying to train my lungs by stopping and taking long, deep breaths. I know I can't lay on my back anymore, flat on my back. That's a no-no because it caused me a lot of pain. This is after hospital. And and also when I get dry, like I'm getting dry now, I also get a little cough. Do you want someone to just drink water? Yeah, do you want to? Exactly. Well, good. I just have to interject because you say, if I laugh too long, and I'm thinking, mm-hmm. how is it that you have uh, found the, the time and space to laugh too long? You were just in the hospital <laughs> fighting for your life. <laughs> <laughs> well, you kind of take it in stride. Um, like I said, I was a cancer survivor before. I'm a very positive person. Even my blood is B positive. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, it's like, well, it happened. So now where am I going from here? I'm still alive. So I might as well celebrate that rather than wallow around in, oh, my God, I had this terrible disease. And now everybody's afraid of me and all this. Because literally, if I tell people that I've had the virus, even though I've had a clean bill of health, people are still kind of nervous being around me. I kind of laugh about it. I say, well, you know, it is what it is. I mean, what can I do? So I just have to figure out, okay, what's life like after this? Now I've got a second chance. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? With the cancer, it's like you got a third chance. Truly, truly it is. I didn't think about that, but yeah, it is. It is a third chance, like another rebirth. (laughs) Another rebirth, as if one wasn't enough. Um, I know, right? (laughs) What was the first thing you remember after coming to consciousness? The very first thing. I was in tears. I was saying, thank you, God, for letting me live. I kept saying it over and over. Thank you, God, for letting me live. Thank you, God, for letting me live. Because it wasn't me necessarily, because if it was my time, I'm gone. But it wasn't. And I was still kind of reflecting on what I heard from the voices I heard from my mother and my daughter. I was I was happy because I was like, they don't have to go through that. Before you moved to Colorado, you were a minister in Indiana, and I want you to put mm-hmm. that hat on, or maybe maybe that robe. Um, okay. <laughs> you say that you were thanking God. I always wonder, if you were thanking God, do the people who die, like, should they be thanking God or ruining God? How, how have you kind of wrestled with that? 
Well, I think both ways you would be thanking God. Because uh, if you are a Christian, then um, you have to believe in heaven because that's what we believe we're going if we're a Christian. And as a result, you would be thanking God that you made it. (laughs) Because see, the Bible does tell you in everything, give thanks. And it also says to everything, there is a season, time to be born, a time to die, a time to be sad and a time to laugh. So if you're looking at those two things, then you have to understand that either way is a blessing. To stay here is a blessing. To go, therefore, would be also a blessing. So in everything, give thanks. Ravi, it's not every day that I identify a guest racially. You are African-American. Mm-hmm. Yes. And one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you, in addition to this incredible story, is that we know from the data that African-Americans have been disproportionately affected. And there's a whole host of reasons that that's true. Right. Have you seen that data, those headlines? And I I just wonder what you make of them, if so. I I have seen it. I actually saw some stories about it on the news right after I woke up, which I was like, okay. (laughs) I was like, I'm African-American. I'm still here. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking about that. But yeah, I've seen that. And to me, it's true because I've talked to several friends who have either had it or been affected by it. Family members passing away. I even saw just a few days ago a five-year-old girl. I've forgotten what state, but she was also African-American and she passed away. Her father was a healthcare worker and he brought apparently must have brought it home. And the little girl got it and she ultimately did pass away. I think um, this is just me and me thinking about it while I was laying, well, all those hours I was laying in the hospital and not able to do anything. Yeah. Um, I was thinking that it's got to be some kind of correlation between different members of African-American culture, what they must have experienced and their um, susceptibility, I guess if that's a word, to the COVID-19. I personally have high blood pressure and I'm a borderline diabetic. The five-year-old you mentioned is Skylar Herbert, and um, this was in the Detroit area. Mm-hmm. I want to thank you for your time, and I, I'm glad you lived. <laughs> I'm really. I, I'm... <laughs> so am I. <laughs> <laughs> that is COVID nineteen survivor Ravi Turman of Aurora. She was one of the first coronavirus patients to be successfully taken off a ventilator in this state. Okay, after a break, a closer look at the racial disparity in this pandemic, the reasons behind it, and some potential solutions. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Evergreen members make ongoing monthly donations in support of CPR. If you're an Evergreen member and have recently received a new credit or debit card, please update your information on file. Updating your credit or debit card will ensure that your investment in the programs you love is current. Easier still, switch to giving directly from a bank account. Your ongoing commitment to supporting in-depth news and music on CPR makes an impact. Call member services to update your card information at 800-722-4449. Whether you get sick from COVID-19 will depend at least in part on your race. Across the country, minority groups, especially African Americans and Latinos, have higher infection rates. In Colorado specifically, blacks are 4.6% of the population, but account for 7.7% of cases. 
and almost 6.6% of deaths. To delve into why, and to talk about how the state might reverse the trend, we're joined by Deidre Johnson, Executive Director of the Center for African American Health in Denver, and welcome, Deidre. Thank you for having me. Also, State Representative Leslie Harrod, a Democrat whose district in Northeast Denver has a large African American population, and Representative, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you for having me this morning. Deidre, racial disparities in health are nothing new. Does COVID-19 feel like more of the same to you, or does it feel like it might be a turning point for African-Americans? You know, I, I hope it becomes a turning point. As was mentioned, um, you know, our community suffers from a number of chronic diseases, whether it's diabetes, cardiovascular, high blood pressure, um, all of which make us more at risk for this. But we've always had persistent health disparities, um, really due to systemic issues that go far beyond health with regard to access to housing, access to food, um, socioeconomic disparities. So I think it's a wonderful clarion call for now is the time to begin to look for solutions to do things differently. Otherwise, um, if we don't get to the root causes of these disparities, the the next COVID-like attack is going to wreak the same amount of havoc. Did you see this coming? I wonder if if you watched the early headlines in China and thought there is inequity coming to the United States with this. You know, to be honest, I watched the the early reports from China. Um, Even in my wildest dream, I did not expect our own country to be so ill-prepared nationally. But, you know, that's a whole other conversation. But that being said, once it came here, I expected disproportionate effects in our community. Representative Herod, you've been active on social media and Zoom talking about COVID-19's impact in the communities you serve. What are you hearing from constituents right now? Yeah, well, it, it's... Um... I mean, it's fascinating, right? So when we heard about COVID-19 and its effects um, uh, outside of this country, I think I immediately thought, you know, what impacts is this going to have on the African-American population when it gets to the United States, Um, specifically because I have asthma and my father was a respiratory therapist. And so when we talk about um, a, you know, pandemic that uh, attacks our respiratory system, um, I thought, you know, this is definitely going to have disproportionate impacts on our communities. And it didn't take long after the virus hit this country that we started to see the inequalities that Deidre talked about have existed for um, generations um, to play out in bad health outcomes um, for the African-American population. And so, um, so for me, it was really important that we talk about these disparities, that for one, the black community understands that um, we will be hit harder by this pandemic. We are being hit harder by this pandemic. And it's really important that we take it seriously um, and that we get the help that we need. I, I know that some of the directives, the policies that have been handed down, you know, with good intentions, like asking people to wear face masks, have had unintended consequences or come across as just tone deaf in the African-American community. Can you explain that? 
Sure. Yeah, you know, um, and in speaking to uh, some of my my friends, especially younger males, um, when the conversation started about having to wear face masks out, they were like, well, that's just going to be another reason for me to get racially profiled, um, be it by law enforcement or just, you know, in a store being followed around. And of course, that's played out. Um, And so African-American males and folks in our communities and the um, uh, Latinx community are very concerned about wearing masks out and being discriminated against because of it. And unfortunately, that's happening. And so You know, I think it's really important that we as a community say that um, we embrace mask wearing, similar to what our governor has said, um, and that regardless of your race, um, we accept you and we are not um, threatened or afraid of you and we will stand up for you if we see discrimination happening. But it's real. It's happened. You've heard reports of it, in other words. Absolutely. And I've seen it firsthand. Um, And so it's just, again, really important um, that we acknowledge that. You know, one thing that I think is um, clear is that while uh, COVID does not discriminate, um, we also cannot act like this pandemic is colorblind or take a colorblind approach. We need to overlay any of our responses onto, you know, the realities of black and brown communities. That includes the hardships of wearing masks and what that actually looks like in our communities. But it also means getting the health care that we need when we do become sick. Getting the health care you need when you become sick. Is it impossible to have this conversation, Deidre, without talking about the state of U.S. health care, which was a huge topic of conversation uh, before COVID-19 landed because it was part of the presidential election and that conversation. It was part of the conversation at the state legislature. I wonder, Deidre, if you look to 2020 and and November and think that will be decisive in this conversation? You know, I think it will be decisive, but, you know, we have to make no mistake. There's one thing to say we need increased access for everybody, but what we need is increased equitable access. Um, We have a long history of racial bias in our health system because it mirrors the country we live in, and studies have shown that whether or not we've got insurance, education, or access, we are typically plagued by low-quality health care, either that we're not listened to, um, people don't believe we have the same level of pain, et cetera. There's a number of things. So I think it's a kind of a both-and. I think what you're saying there is the first obstacle is to get the care, right, to get into the doctor's office, if you will. The, right. second, the second obstacle is once you're there, things aren't even as, as well. Exactly. It does feel like uh, a tricky thread. I mean, once you start pulling at the thread, there are so many other adjacent issues that have to be addressed. It, it's just, it feels like health is not something you address in a vacuum, Representative. Well, that's absolutely um, correct. You can't address it in a vacuum. And what I think it's really important is that we have rapid response teams here in Colorado um, so that if someone reports um, being discriminated against in the medical setting, which happens every day, it's happened to myself, um, that there's an opportunity to educate the doctors and the other healthcare professionals about how some of their unconscious bias might be informing um, their delivery of healthcare in a negative way. At this point, I'd like to bring into the conversation Dr. Renee Marquardt. She's Chief Medical Officer of the Colorado Department of Human Services. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Glad to be here. I know that you've been listening into the conversation thus far, and 
I'd like to know what specific steps the state is taking to address racial disparities. We heard about these rapid response teams that Representative Herod mentioned. What else? Um, yeah, hi. So, and, and I, I just want to clarify that as, as in the Department of Human Services, that's separate from the Colorado Department of Public Health and the Environment that's, t- that's taking the lead for the community response in general, but, but we're certainly collaborating with them closely in our department and, and plugged in. Um, in the Department of Public Health and the Environment, there is the Office of Health Equity. Um, this is the director, Webb Brown, who has been working on these issues for a while. And in mid-April, the um, state stood up a special response team called the Health Equity Response Team for specifically addressing things related to COVID. I know some of the measures that are being talked about can be seen on a a nice webpage they have on the um, CDPHE website, but things that, you know, are talked about around the country that are really important. First of all, really getting the data to look at what's going on. Um, Initially, um, race and ethnicity were not widely reported in the data, so increasing that data so it can be seen what, what is going on and getting more and more details to be able to drill down on what the different factors seem to be and sharing that data to um, educate health professionals as well as communities about that. Um, doing things like taking measures to have better communication about how to prevent the spread in the community, culturally sensitive education, um, the, 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 your other guests have talked about some of the ways that the information and the actions need to be culturally sensitive in order for them to be effective. So that's extremely important. And then figuring out how to get, um, how to coordinate the resources um, that are needed to address the disparities, things like uh, targeted locations for testing and facilitating, facilitating care, um, as well as then developing policies that can um, can help both now as well as prepare for future emergencies that might disproportionately affect different communities. All right, let's unpack some of that. So you mentioned data. I know that Representative Herod, you helped sort of beat the drum on getting racial data out of Mm -hmm. COVID-19. Is it enough data? Is it to your satisfaction? What are you learning from it? Well, I, I do think that we need more data. We need it um, down to the neighborhood and zip code um, so that those rapid response teams can um, respond in the correct areas um, and in the right way. And I think that data is being collected um, as of now, which is great. Um, and I'm glad that the state of Colorado stepped up and said we will demand collection of this data and the reporting of this data and we'll make that public. But what we're seeing is the inequalities exist and now it's time to respond and save lives. What I don't want to see happen is us waiting until the end of this pandemic, whenever that may be, to say, darn, we lost a lot of black and brown people. Instead, we could say, we know the inequalities exist, we are seeing it in the data, and now we are going to respond quickly so we can bring down these disparities and make sure that more Coloradans make it on the other side of this pandemic alive. You say respond quickly, and yet we establish in the first part of the conversation that so much of this is connected to long-standing institutional history and bias. Um, you know, these are mountains to move, aren't they? Are, are, how do you move quickly in the face of something that is so old and so long standing? 
Well, the first response is that we can't just throw our hands up and say, oh, it's too big for us. We can't do anything. We must do what the state of Colorado, um, Chicago, parts of Georgia are already doing, which is creating those response teams, going into those neighborhoods led by community groups, um, dispelling myths about what the virus is and isn't, um, making sure that we have rapid testing and mobile testing units in our neighborhoods and that we have access to masks and other PPEs. The other thing is we need to ensure that our essential workers are protected. Let me give you an example. Yeah. Um, RTD, our bus drivers, right? Um, they are 30% African-American, 30%. And they are out there every single day ensuring that the buses are continuing to run. And we've seen some of the um, lack, I think, of PPEs that they have and they're, that, that they're getting. And so we have to make sure that our essential workers have what they need. We need to ensure that our medical system is responsive, that we take this as a public health pandemic and understand that the um, interventions for each community may look a little different. Yeah, that's interesting because that reflects, I think, on what we just heard from Dr. Markhart, Deidre Johnson, this idea of culturally sensitive messaging about ample testing in the African-American community. I think if you ask any community in Colorado right now, they're loath to tell you that there's ample testing. What does it mean to be culturally sensitive? We talked a bit about the masks. Are there other examples, Deidre? You know, I think it's, it's really about understanding people's lives and meeting them where they're at. You know, like Leslie mentioned with regard to the RTD drivers, there are so many... Um, areas of work where we're at elevated risk or exposure just because of our job. And we're not going to have the luxury of sheltering in place or maintaining a social distance. So depending on, you know, where you're working, what your options are, how can you be kept as safe as possible, Uh whether it's with PPE, really having a true understanding, and have access to a test to keep you and your family safe. And let's talk specifically about testing, which Dr. Markhart brought up. is there ample testing in the African-American community? And what, what, what would that look like if there were? Sure. Well, Denver, um, Denver has set up uh, a mobile unit now, and I know that they are responding in far northeast Denver. Um, and that is really something that we need to um, continue to push forward. We also have to acknowledge that a lot of folks in the African-American community don't even have access to a primary care physician. Um, and so, you know, requiring that there's a doctor's order first is just not working. Um, so we have to make sure that there is other options for folks to have access to these tests, especially if they are essential workers, if they are part of a vulnerable population, or they have those pre-existing health conditions. Dr. Markhart, reflect on that for me, and then let's wrap up with just a few thoughts from you. Yeah, absolutely. Testing, as everyone is mostly aware, has been a a huge, huge problem um, throughout this pandemic. And so the, the communities that already have worse access to health care services in general and who might be at higher risk than, you know, are just all that much more affected. So it's really important that as we go forward with testing and try to ramp it up to the needed levels that a close look is taken at, um, at doing targeted planning so that the communities most affected or disproportionately affected have those resources that are targeted specifically in ways that work for them. Okay, and the state is working on that? I mean, that's the goal. How do you get there? Well, I think that's one of the one of the goals of this health equity response team is to is to is to develop planning and policy and building that into it so that it's a planful approach, an intentional 
approach to be to be factoring in the disparities and targeting things with that knowledge. I love that word. Did you say planful? Um, yes. Planful. Uh, a planful approach. Thanks so much to the three of you for joining us. I really appreciate your reflections. So you heard there from Chief Medical Officer for the Colorado Department of Human Services, Dr. Renee Markhart, Deidre Johnson, Executive Director for the Center of for African American Health in Denver, and Democratic State Representative Leslie Harrod. Her district in Northeast Denver has a large African American population. When we come back, a place COVID-19 hasn't touched, but climate change sure has touched it. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We are living in a time of global mourning. The loss of routine, of normalcy. And for many, like Tracy Lane of Denver, the loss of loved ones. In a pandemic, that means no funeral, not even an obituary. It's not being recognized by the world. In a way, it's almost like my dad didn't die. I'm Sam Brash. And I'm May Ortega. On the latest episode of our podcast, At a Distance, how people are grieving in a pandemic. Find At a Distance on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Coronavirus has disrupted global travel. And while it's stressful to cancel plans, it could be worse. Consider the logistical challenges facing our next guest. Matthew Shoup is an atmospheric scientist in Boulder, and it's his job to coordinate supplies and a rotating crew for a 100-person scientific mission in the Arctic during a pandemic. He's joining us from Colorado, but we'll be leaving this week to head back to the ship where these experiments are being conducted. And Matthew, thank you for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'll just say the goal of the expedition is to have this large research vessel float in the ice for a full year and gather data. Uh, Can you just tell us what it's like up there now? What's your understanding of the scene? Who's on ship? How long have they been there? Yeah, the scene right now is that the sun is up. When I was there before, a couple months ago, it was totally dark, but now the sun is up and it circles the sky for 24 hours of the day. Mm -hmm. So it's really bright. The ice has been very dynamic. There are a lot of cracks happening, which challenges our work on site. And there are, you know, 90-plus people out there right now, crew of the ship, scientists. There are a few people from Boulder out there still just conducting our research and carrying on and, and meeting the daily challenges that the ice presents. Has COVID-19 managed at all to reach the, the crew? Or have they been sort of walled off in the way that I imagine people aboard the International Space Station were? Yeah, as far as we know, totally walled off. There's been no uh, indication of any... Uh, COVID-19 reaching out to the ship there. Well, that's good news. I'm pleased to hear it. Of course, your goal will be to make sure that remains the case. But tell me about this upcoming crew transfer, which you'll be a part of. Um, You'll be traveling to Germany and rejoining the crew. Um, I understand that the expedition has to shut down for a few weeks to make that happen. Explain it for us. Yes, uh, shortly, uh, a bunch of people, including six people from Boulder, will be heading to Germany and we will be going into a two-week quarantine, so we're going to be totally isolated there for a few days, no contact with anybody, stay in your hotel room for six days, basically, which will be very interesting. But then, you know, collectively we'll be there uh, for the the duration of the two weeks, and then we'll board a couple of ships that will sail from Germany up to uh, near the ice edge, and the ship that is frozen in the ice will actually journey its way out to the ice edge so that we can meet these other ships and do this 
transfer of people and supplies and fuel. Uh, and then the research vessel will head back up into the ice. And that will include me and, and a bunch of other people. What a choreography this is. I mean, I, I have to imagine that you plan for a lot of contingencies. Um, it's never easy to bring together hundreds of people from 20 different countries. But was a global pandemic ever in your plans? It was not. It certainly was not. We definitely planned for all kinds of different things to happen. And, you know, I really want to acknowledge the Alfred Wegener Institute from Germany. They're really the lead of all this massive logistical operation. And, yeah, so many different plans. And we've pursued so many in the last week to try to figure out how to do this rotation and finally found one that actually looks like it's going to work. And that keeps everyone safe, right? It does. Oh, this is, of course, our first priority. So we are very careful with how we treat people, how they interact, so that we can ensure that you know this nice little island out there in the middle of the Arctic, our ship out there, will remain uh, free of the coronavirus. What are you hearing from the scientists on the ship now? Like, what's their mood? The mood has been up and down. Uh, you know, admittedly, when people got the, uh, the notice that, hey, our previous plan for the rotation wasn't going to work out, uh, some people were very nervous about that, right? There's this pandemic setting in. They can't get home. We're not sure how they're getting home. So some people were very nervous. But I think that, you know, we've kind of learned a lot. We've set up plans now. People are becoming more comfortable with that. And also, you know, the sun has been coming out. It's really beautiful out. So I think that that also helps to increase people's uh, mood and, you know, really help them focus on the science of the season. Is there a sense that they're in a different world? Well, they certainly are in a different world, right? It's, it's a world where they actually don't get a ton of information. We, we try to send a lot, but, you know, they're cut off. We're all living in this coronavirus world right now, and yeah. they are kind of cut off from that. And they're, they're pretty safe out there. And so it is very much a different world out there in the Central Arctic right now. When you were on the show, I think it was back in January, you described a lot of thin ice in the Arctic. Um, and that's where you'd set up scientific tools outside the research ship. Are you able to leave those tools on the ice while the ship is getting recharged? That is our plan for some equipment, right? We, we're trying to balance things. Obviously, we don't want to lose everything because our data or potential future data is really important to us. So we're going to take some things back on board the ship and we're going to leave others there to try to have some continuity with the measurements, right? So some of the important things that are happening right now is we're getting more and more energy accumulated at the surface because the sun has come out. And so understanding that transfer of energy and how that affects the eventual sea ice melt is really important. So we want to leave some instruments there to get our continuous measurements. We'll take some with us to be safe with those and go back and we'll get back out to that same ice flow within about three weeks, hopefully, and we can continue on with all the rest of the measurements. It's, it's a lot of schlepping. Is it? I feel like this is just the embodiment of the term schlep. It is a lot of schlepping. <laughs> I, you know, I'll say that you know, I was out there and there was a lot of schlepping. And ever since, you know, I left and other people have been out there, it's pretty much, uh, maybe on a daily basis, may maybe every couple of days, there's a crack in the ice, there's something that happens and you have to go respond and go move some instrument or whatever. So it's, oh yeah, it's very much a lot of schlepping. You are gathering a tremendous amount of data on this expedition. I wonder if there have been any discoveries to this point. You know, a lot of the discoveries will reveal themselves in time, uh -huh. right? We're, we're out there to put all these pieces together, and it's a very complicated system, and we don't always understand what we're looking at in a given moment. But I will say that we've captured a lot of really interesting events, right? You, you mentioned the thin ice, and indeed, we have very thin ice, and we've had a lot of breaking in the ice. And I think we're going to learn a lot about how this new, thinner Arctic ice pack 
how it breaks and how it moves and how it deforms. And those are things that are be really fascinating. And then also just last week, we had this fantastic storm event that brought this really warm air up into the central Arctic. The temperatures got all the way to the melting point. Huh. Already, it's very early in the season for that. And we have this fantastic data set to look at those processes, which are part of how this, this whole kind of changing Arctic is manifesting, these warm air masses that are leading to ice melt. I mean, ice has been with us for a long time, but we are still learning about ice behavior, huh? How it cracks, for instance, how it melts. Oh, certainly. It's so important. This is one of the key motivators for why we're out there is, you know, the sea ice is the centerpiece. And we're trying to understand how it melts, how it freezes, how it breaks. And especially now, as the ice is thinner, right? 20 years ago, 30 years ago, the ice was thicker and it behaved differently. Now we're in this new Arctic with thinner ice. And we really need to understand how that behaves so that we can predict it, so that we can forecast it, so that we can operate in this opening Arctic. Is there a part of you that's looking forward to leaving the world where COVID is dominant? And, you know, even though it's sunny all the time, which can be lovely, but also disconcerting, or do you look forward to that more insular world? Yeah, in a way I do. I mean, it's. I think that you know, the, the COVID situation now kind of wears on everybody, right? It's, it's there every day. We look at the news. It's, it's all over the news. And it'll be nice to kind of step away from that a little bit. I'm sure we won't be totally away from it, but a little bit to focus on something else. That'll actually be really nice. I hate to end on this note, but do you have a, <laughs> do you have a plan if someone were to get sick? Well, that's a great question. Uh, we do have a doctor on board the ship. There's a whole medical facility. And so in principle, um, we are well equipped to, to deal with uh, sickness that happens on board. Now, it, you know, of course, it de- depends on the severity and many other conditions. And those things are all you know, being heavily discussed right now. So that we do have plans to, to try to deal with that. And of course, there are medevac capabilities mm. and, and many other responses that we might take, depending, of course, on the conditions. And so, of course, these are things we think about a lot and plan for and hopefully will not happen. But we'll see. Thanks so much for being with us, and safe travels. Yeah, thank you very much. Matthew Shoup helps lead Mosaic, the multidisciplinary drifting observatory for study of Arctic climate. Shoup's a research scientist with CU and with NOAA in Boulder. Young filmmakers at Denver School of the Arts are holding a virtual film festival on Friday. It's called Crack a Corona. Not to worry, we were told there'd be no underage drinking of Corona beer. (laughs) No, no, we will not. It was kind of a fun name that would attract some people and just it kind of gave the festival like a sense of like laid back, just kind of feel and just like that sort of thing. That is 16-year-old Grant Kaufman, one of the festival's founders. Before schools emptied out because of coronavirus, Grant and his friends planned to screen their junior year projects, films they had worked really hard on. My film is called Annette, and it is about a young chef of a high-class restaurant who struggles to make a strict menu deadline. But on one night, an old ex-girlfriend walks into the restaurant unexpectedly. Hey. I just wanted to say thanks for coming in. Of course. It was delicious. And great seeing you. You too. 
I was super proud of it. And when the Junior Film Festival was canceled, I was pretty bummed that I didn't get to show it. Do you maybe want to go back to my place? Have a drink? Yeah. I would love that. Well, Grant and his friends dreamed up a way not only to showcase their projects, but also films from students all over the state who were in the same boat. They ended up with about 20 submissions. All of them were so different and so amazing. And I say like there's a few common themes among all of them, mainly because they're all made by teen filmmakers. And a lot of teen filmmakers have like similar experiences just because of, you know, their age and their environment. There's a lot of elements and themes of growing up and teenage life. Lauren, seven minutes in heaven with Matt. Okay. Yeah, Lauren. Hey, you don't need to do this. Come on. But then there are some films that are like complete outliers, like serial killer noirs or like a documentary. So I'd say that there's kind of a theme with just the way storytelling is but at the same time all the stories are different and all of them are unique grant thinks there's a lot to be learned from watching films made by teenagers i feel like when you're a teen and you're an artist and you have this medium that you can use to tell stories i feel like you have so much creative potential that you like the sky's the limit because there's so much creativity bubbling in there I feel like it's important that other people see that because these are the people that are going to be telling the stories in the future. These are the people that are going to be making your movies that you go and see in the theaters and making your shows that you see on Netflix. So will there be future crack a Corona film festivals or is this a one-off to help get through COVID-19? We're not sure yet. The idea for the film festival was kind of born out of the idea of like quarantine and isolation. I think next year, if we do something like this, we might actually do like a live film festival in person and like at an actual theater. Here's hoping, Grant. That is Grant Kaufman, Jr. at Denver School of the Arts and organizer of the Crack a Corona Film Festival. It takes place Friday evening at 7 on YouTube. Finally today, we've been asking local musicians how COVID-19 cancellations affect them. For many, live shows are a primary source of income and exposure. Singer-songwriter Rob Drabkin replied to us with something he's been working on in isolation. Hey, CPR Radio. This is Rob Drabkin. Um, I wrote you guys a quick song. Uh, It's called Wash Your Hands. (laughs) Just something to lighten the mood a bit. And I hope you enjoy Wash your hands, don't touch your face Please don't panic, just use the Lysol spray Don't touch your eyes, don't pick your nose Can I touch my butt that I don't really know If I go, I'm going to the grocery store today if I stand, I'm standing six feet away If I go, I'm going to the grocery store again If I see you stand back, I'll wave to you, my friend Stay safe, everyone. Thank you so much. That is Denver native Rob Drabkin. He originally went to school to become a doctor. Now he's a full-time musician, although COVID-19 has had a big impact on his livelihood.
Every single show from about March 9th until at least May has been postponed, canceled, or just put into question. Um, the total income loss for me was around $15,000, sadly. Everything from my album release show, which I was so excited about, to playing private concerts, playing festivals, playing clubs. I was even supposed to play the grand opening of a Whole Foods. I thought there was a chance that gig might stick around since it was a grocery store, but nope, that was canceled also. After taking hits like that, Trabkin has had to get creative, or more creative than a songwriter already has to be. Right after I got the cancellation notices, all I did was apply to artist grants. There were so many foundations around the world that were immediately offering grants that were related to COVID-19 and the pandemic, so I went after those. I've done streaming online concerts, rebooted my Patreon page, encouraged online tips through Venmo, PayPal, and I even started offering private lessons through Skype. Let's wrap with a single from Drabkin's latest album, a track called It's a Beautiful Day. Early this morning woke up holding my head, hearing my heartbeat all night long. Shades of this motel keeping me in bed, reading the news just trying to stay strong. I need to just get up take a deep breath. I keep it together Cause it's a beautiful inspiration to wrap up the show. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.